Lord, we want to turn these next few minutes over to you. I want to uh, start um, by praying for another pastor and his wife in uh, Quinlan who's lost, who have lost a baby. Pray for Cheryl and uh, Brad LaFavors. Lord, I pray right now that they see you and uh, know you and are walking closely with you through this dark hour. And uh, we recognize that there's no life that ends except that by your permission and uh, even a little tiny life. And um, I pray that you'll be glorified through this dark hour. I pray that this church will rally and pray that this church will enjoy the hope that we have in you and uh, that they will be a, a salty, bright, aromatic people in Quinlan. Um, and really in spite of this and through this, I pray that Quinlan will see a hope that uh, a people have in a risen Lord and in a finished work. I pray for Brad and Cheryl for their worship. I pray that their marriage will be, in fact, strengthened through this somehow, that you will um, grow them more satisfied with the cross and uh, more hopeful in Christ's return and um, more driven by worship and wonder. I pray that their marriage will be a, uh, a visual, really an illustration and visual aid to their people. Uh, to your people there of the gospel, as Brad loves um, Cheryl, as Christ loved the church, and as uh, Cheryl submits to uh, Brad as the church follows Christ. Uh, Lord, in whatever way possible that we can minister to this people or come alongside them, whether in an official way or an unofficial, just a dailiness of life, we pray that we will walk obediently in that. We pray for your glory and your fame and renown uh, in this people in Quinlan. Lord, for this people this morning, I, I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond them and a clarity that's beyond me. Such a critical, critical reality that we're engaging this morning. Such a heartbreak at Eden that's rectified and redeemed in the cross. I pray that we connect to that this morning. I pray that our hearts will sing over what we see in your word. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 18. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a plan for the morning. This morning's message is sort of a macro view of the gospel. Um, you certainly know by now, after us being in John for almost eight years that we're good at the micro, um, and the micro has rich reward. When you get down your hands and knees, you really can find some treasures. But there are times where it's appropriate to take a macro view, to kind of rise up above the situation and take a bird's eye view of the story. So in order to do that, we need to engage a larger passage of Scripture. So it's going to be some reading this morning. Um, I'm going to set the stage for John chapters 18 and 19 in another passage of Scripture that you may have never connected to John chapters 18 and 19. And then we're going to read all of John chapter 18 and 19. Given what takes place in those chapters, that shouldn't be too much for us to read that story, every word. And then we're going to consider how these two passages connect. And then hopefully our, our souls will soar and sing over what we're seeing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Chapter 2 of Genesis, he gives sort of an amplified description of the day that he created man. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight of and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Man was made as a gardener from the outset. Not a mechanic, not a fixer, but a gardener. Man was given ample supply of trees and fruit and a lush, amazing garden to live in. Man had his complement, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, in Hebrew, Isha, woman, to make up sort of his, make up sort of where he left off. 
Man was given an environment full of life. He was what we would imagine to be living what we would call an abundant life, living in an environment that's absolutely free of decay, not just in the garden, but in himself as well. I was reading this about our bodies. After age 30, human beings begin to age noticeably. (laughs) Hormone levels decline. Skin becomes thinner, less flexible. Gray hair and wrinkles appear. Muscle mass decreases. Bones lose calcium. Blood vessels stiffen. And brain cells begin to die. At age 35, humans may lose up to 100,000 brain cells per day. Good news. The ears, the eyes, and other sensory organs also lose sensitivity. As really our bodies experience decay. Adam experienced none of those things. And probably the best thing that he experienced, the most scandalous thing that he experienced in the garden up to this point and so far where we've read up to chapter 2 is that he had fellowship with his creator. He walked with his creator, it seems, in the cool of the day and had face-to-face interaction. A holy God with a sinless man walking in the cool of the day. And he had but one commandment, one boundary. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden In the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, the one boundary, the one commandment that I gave you? And the man said, The woman. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman 
He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You wonder why your checking account is easier to empty than fill? It's a result of the fall. Cursed is the ground because of you. You wonder why it's one step forward, two steps back? Because of the fall. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are three really terrible outcomes of Eden. Three really heartbreaking events of Eden. The first one has to do with the division between man and woman. Before this time, they wore no clothing because there was no guilt. There was no shame. And after the fall, they're looking for fig leaves to sew together to hide themselves because there's guilt and shame. And if you were paying attention, you saw right off the bat, there's already the blame game. You wonder why man is easy, comes by this? We come by it easily from, from the beginnings. Where man blames woman and blames God for his sin. And woman blames serpent for her sin. There's division right off the bat between Adam and Eve. There's also what I would call an early Egypt that's built into every single marriage where the woman's desire is for her husband. Guys, I got bad news for you. That's not what you would hope it would be. What that points to is the unharnessed natural woman, the genete horse-riding woman, her desire is to control her man and to nag her man to death. That's what the unharnessed fallen woman looks like. Her desire will be for her husband, and, his, and he shall rule over you. That's the unharnessed, unredeemed man who wants to treat his wife like a minion instead of caring for her like a weaker vessel, gently shepherding her and loving her like Christ has loved the church. It's an early Egypt that's built into every single marriage from the outset. And it's one that rages in many marriages decades into it. It's one that shows it rears its ugly head even in a good marriage from time to time. Right? That's a result of the fall. Division between man and woman. And then it shows up here in the next chapters between brother and brother when brother kills brother over nothing. The story of Cain and Abel. And then it shows up between Israelite and Canaanite. Between David and Goliath. Between David 
And Saul, between Jew and Gentile, between neighbor and neighbor, and it still rears its ugly head even today. Where we're left to our own device, we divide. And we fight. It's a result of the fall. Division. Another result of the fall is death. He says, from dust you came to dust you shall return. I think one of the crazy, weird privileges of being a pastor, it's a weird privilege that I haven't always seen it as such, is that I have the weird privilege of doing funerals. And I have the weird privilege of being called to people's bedsides when they're in their last hours. And seeing death up close and personal. And something about seeing it up close and personal has taught me that it is sometimes expected, maybe in the case of old age, Sometimes not, maybe in the case of tragedy, but it is always, whether it's tragedy or whether it's expected, it is always unwelcome. I've never, even in the case of somebody who's ancient, seen it really welcomed. We sort of digest it in some way if they're in pain and say, well, at least they're not in pain anymore. And we somehow can embrace death in that way. But the only thing that I've ever seen, or excuse me, the most natural thing I've ever seen is birth The most unnatural thing I've ever seen is death. It's never natural. We weren't made for it. But it's a consequence of the fall. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And death entered the world. And the tree of life, the righteous tree, with this big, ripe, plump fruit hanging from every branch that was never plucked, is guarded cherubim with flaming swords preventing man from taking of the tree of life. That's a consequence of the fall. And third, there's separation from our creator. Man was driven. Like a dog, a stray dog has run out out of your yard. Man was driven from the garden. Man lost the cool of the day fellowship that we once experienced with our creator And from this point on, the only hope that man has of enjoying a holy God, sinful man has of enjoying a holy God, is through something that God gave as a ministry of grace called the sacrificial system. The temple and the tabernacle become sort of a pseudo-Eden where man can show up with a substitute that will kill and will shed his blood to cover my sin so I can spend a few minutes walking with you in the cool of the day. But it's really not walking with God in the cool of the day. It's more like slogging with God and plotting with God through this cumbersome, complicated, difficult system of sacrifice. We lost that cool of the day relationship in the fall. But thankfully, as an act of grace, God gave even an imperfect way to point to the perfect. This imperfect system, this complicated, cumbersome system of the sacrificial work prepares us and points us and stages us for the perfect and final sacrifice that will make right all the wrongs of Eden. In this final imperfect sacrifice, the great losses of Eden, division, separation, and death will be restored and redeemed.
Let's go there now with this in view. John chapter 18. Thank you, babe. That's my helpmate right there. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples in the garden, that is. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made, or had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would, have, would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do the others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what even is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Peter, or Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm king of the Jews. And Pilate said, You know what? What I've written, I've written. But when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there in the garden. I've learned in um, eight years how to read John, and there's no detail in John that's too small. John has these surface face value miracles and works that Raising somebody from the dead, shazam, that's amazing. But points to a deeper, richer picture of what he's done in the work of salvation. Calling past the only obstacle that we can't get past called death and calling people who are dead to life. I've learned to look at the details. And in reading this chapter, as big a section as it is, or these chapters, you see that they're framed like bookends in a garden context. He's arrested in the garden. He's buried in a garden. 
It seems God wants us to connect these two chapters to something else. It's not the only indication that we have that God is going that direction, that John's going that direction. In chapter 18, verse 2, Judas shows up with a band of people. And it says that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there in the garden with his disciples. Well, of course he did, because that's what God does. He walks with his people in the cool of the day. It just makes perfect sense. These two chapters are framed in a garden context. Jesus spends time with his disciples in the garden because he's God. The third evidence, piece of evidence here for a garden context, a garden attentiveness that goes back to the very beginning. Earlier in the book of John, chapter 13, just listen to this. It says, after he had taken the morsel, that being Judas, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, Judas or Satan? Who are you talking to, Jesus? Do quickly. And that's where Judas leaves the table to go gather the band that shows up here in John chapter 18. Satan is in this garden as well. He slithered into Eden. He storms into Gethsemane. He said, I'm going to get it done this time. I'm going to bring a band with torches and with clubs and with spears. And we're going to take care of business this time. It seems God and John as well want us to read chapters 18 and 19 in view of the garden and in view of what happened in the beginning of the story of man in the Garden of Eden. So with Eden in mind, let's consider what these two chapters did to the problems of Eden, to division, to death, and to separation from God. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to deal with each of those things, division, death, and separation. But first, I just want to take a moment to deal with Satan. Because it's just too sweet to not consider. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 13. And focus on verse 15, but for the sake of context, beginning in verse 13. That'll give you a minute to get there. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The events of chapter 18 and 19 of John. And in that cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it. I just want to take a minute to deal with the serpent. God told the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, your head is going to be bruised slash crushed. And here's where it happens. In John chapter 18... His fate and the fate of his followers is cinched and sealed 
forever. In Colossians, it tells us here in those two chapters, 18 and 19, that Satan is disarmed, that Satan and his minions are put to open shame, that Christ triumphs over them in it. I can just imagine them cheering. When Christ says it's finished and his head drops, can you imagine the party in hell? Can you imagine the party in these unseen realms that we can't see where these principalities live? They must have been living it up. But then comes Sunday morning where I imagine they're looking around going, hey, wait a minute. The stone is moved and Jesus isn't in there. They were made open spectacles. They were chumped by what took place in these chapters in 18 and 19. His head is crushed. His fate is sealed and cinched forevermore. As you read these two chapters, do you hear the crunch of Satan underfoot? You need to because that's where it happened. Chapters 18 and 19. The promise of Eden the consequence for the, sake, for the serpent is realized here. Now, let's deal with division. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Just a chapter, or two chapters, or two books, excuse me, in front of Colossians. Ephesians chapter 2. Just to reacquaint you with the division of the fall, right off the bat, man and woman are separated. Man and woman are divided. Man's blaming God and Eve, and Eve's blaming the serpent. And they're both looking for fig leaves, guilty and shameful. And then the picture of man from that point on, Cain and Abel, Jew and Gentile, Philistine and and Israelite, David and Goliath, David and Saul, the picture goes throughout our Bible, but that division is destroyed in the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by chapters 18 and 19 of the book of John. You who were once alienated have been brought near by what took place in these two chapters by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's made Jew and Gentile one. You can't pick two more unlikely companions. The Hatfields and McCoys are more likely to become one than Jew and Gentile. He's made both of us, Jew and Gentile, one. He's made Adam and Eve one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Chapter 18 and 19 of the book of John, thereby killing the hostility. What takes place in this cross, what takes place in these two chapters is those who are once far off are brought near. That should be good news to us Gentiles, us non-Israelites. We are brought near He makes the unlikely and the divided one in this cross. He reconciles us both, man and woman, Adam and Eve, even a Cain and an Abel. 
a Jew and a Gentile, a neighbor and a neighbor. He reconciles us both to God in one body, killing the hostility that divides people. The scandal of the cross is that Adam forgives Eve and Eve forgives Adam. Through the cross, the wrongs and debts, even the daily ones that plague us, even after 15 or 16 years worth of marriage, even in what I would call a great marriage, those wrongs are forgiven. Those debts are paid. Through the cross, these two, Jew and Gentile, Adam and Eve, even a Ben and a Christie are changed. Even the most difficult marriage that you can possibly imagine through the work of the cross, if by faith it's engaged, has hope. Adam loves his wife as Christ loved the church as an act of worship because of the cross. Eve follows a blaming and guilty and boneheaded husband respecting him, helping him, and loving him as an act of worship because of this cross. The wall of hostility is broken down. How could she not follow him, even him, in light of what's been forgiven her and accomplished for her in the cross? The division between man and man or man and woman is over. His cross makes difficult and divided people one. It's the only thing that really does. Secondly, death. Turn to Romans chapter 5. What did he do with death in these two chapters? Romans chapter 5 sort of contrasts the old Adam and the new Adam. Not sort of, it just clearly does. The old Adam and the new Adam being Christ. In verse 12, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I don't need Adam to be guilty, although I am guilty in Adam. I'm guilty on my own, just like you are. And then later in verse 17, he says, if because of one man's trespass, that being Adam, death reigned. Notice the noun in the verb. Death is a noun in that case. Death reigned reigns because of Adam's sin. If because of one man's sin, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The noun and verb change here. In Adam, The noun is death and the verb is reigns. Just envision this embodiment of death wearing a crown. In Adam, that's our case. But in Christ, the noun changes. And the noun changes actually to us. Those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life. Take the crown off death's ugly head and put it on your own head. Not because of your work, but because of the finished work of Christ. We reign in life because of what happened in chapters 18 and 19. Look at this next verse. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that being the cross, the many will be made 
righteous. Man, we reign in life. Death doesn't reign anymore. We reign now because of this work in chapters 18 and 19 because the new Adam paid for the sin of the old Adam. You've got to see that in these two chapters. Next, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning toward the end of verse 54. This is what happened in this cross. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? You used to wear a crown. Now you're nothing to me. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through what happened in chapters 18 and 19. I'm thankful that the Lord has given us dirt daubers and carpenter bees. I grew up in an old house where, I don't know why, but the wasps sort of found their way into our house. Built in, this house was built in 1857. And I lived in upstairs. There used to be an attic that was turned into a room. That's the house I grew up in. And it wasn't uncommon for me to get under the covers of my bed at night and to get stung by a wasp. Seriously. It was the creepy. I have this, this real crazy fear of wasps. I can't stand them. And I think I was conditioned to that. But then there's dirt daubers. Dirt daubers to me, if just by visual, you look at them and say, man, that's like a wasp on steroids. Dirt daubers, they fly around and they've got their landing gear down and they've got a scowl on their face. And you see them and you say, man, that thing's going to kill me. But in reality, dirt daubers don't sting. Oh, dirt dauber, where is your sting? You just all show no go. Like, like a carpenter bee. Those carpenter bees are like little hummingbirds. You ever seen them? They're huge. And you look at him and say, man, if that thing stings me, I'm going to die. But it doesn't have a stinger. For those who are in Christ, death is a dirt dauber. For those who are in Christ, death is a carpenter bee. Because death has no sting. Because death is swallowed up in these two chapters, chapters 18 and 19. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I enjoy these words from the guy that actually denied Christ three times in this context. Take that in as we read these words. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He starts off by saying, he himself. It sounds so like sort of weird language in the English, but in the Greek, it's actually an emphasis on this being Christ. It's like Christ himself did this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is a garden connection, folks. I don't know if you know that. He could call it cross. That's what everybody else called it, yet he calls it the tree. 
It's a garden connection because Christ is the proper tree. Christ is the embodiment of the tree of life. That if you partake of it, then you have eternal life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In these two chapters, Christ becomes our tree of life as we see him high and lifted up. He becomes our tree of life. He's the righteous tree with life-giving properties for those who partake by faith. His cross places us in the midst of the garden at the foot of the tree of life, past the guards, past the cherubim, past the flaming swords in a forgiven state, now ready to eat of eternal life-giving tree. It was an early grace that he put guards at the garden to keep us from eating of that tree. For if man had eaten of that tree, we would be in an eternal state of dying brain cells. We'd be in an eternal state of decay. It was an early grace for him to put guards up and say, nope, not yet. Something's got to happen to you in your fallen state before you can eat and partake of the tree of life. And that something took place in chapters 18 and 19. For those who by faith partake of Christ are escorted back into the tree of tree of or back back into the garden to the tree of life to eat from the proper tree ready for life this time the third thing was separation where man is driven from the garden and driven from this cool of the day with god sort of relationship and that separation in the work of the cross is over turn to 1st john chapter 1 as you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple of passages with you. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says, He entered, this is being Christ, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ gives us access and an eternal redemption. In Hebrews 10, he says, For by a single offering, he, was, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, we are now able to enter the Garden of Eden again, ready to eat from the proper tree. The passage that I read in Colossians, because he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This took place in John chapters 18 and 19. This is where our problem of sin is fixed. So we can now re-enter into that cool of the day relationship with the living God. John wrote of this. The same John that wrote these two chapters in the book of John writes in 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, that being Christ, which we've heard. We heard what he said, which we've seen with our eyes. We saw what he did, which we looked upon and we've even touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, that being Christ. He showed up, and we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Hear the division destroyed. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
These things that John saw, the things that he heard, the things that he touched. This event of chapters 18 and 19, this is what has restored us to fellowship, not just with each other, but with our creator, where we can now walk in the cool of the day with our God. His cross escorts us back into Eden and back into the cool of the day fellowship. (laughs) You have to take in the terrible loss of Eden before the good news is good news. If you're like, man, whatever, I learned that, I read about that when I was a kid in my kitty Bible, it's kind of cute. If you don't really have a broken heart over what took place there, if every death that you've ever experienced or been close to doesn't take you there where you run to John chapter 18 and 19, then you've missed that regular remembrance that we have. It's a weird blessing of loss that takes us back to John chapter 18 and 19 where we go, yes, that was rectified right there. That was redeemed right there. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you for that reminder when Christy and I have an argument. Yes, it does happen where we can run to chapters 18 and 19 and go, he redeemed that. We don't have to live there. We can forgive each other because of what's been forgiven us. We not only have a model, but we have means. When we enjoy him, something happens to you. God changes you so that Jew and Gentile can live together. Husband and wife, yes, even a difficult husband and wife can live together as one. That's what took place in John chapters 18 and 19. But if you don't take in this terrible loss of Eden, if you don't walk with a Jew to the tabernacle, dragging a lamb and slog off to the tabernacle and get blood all over yourselves and watch the priest sacrifice that thing and hear that lamb bleat his last breaths, if you don't smell the aroma of this sacrifice on the altar... And then you don't walk home sinning yet again and say, man, i got to go back tomorrow. If you don't take that in with Jacob or Sarah or Jew X, then you don't see the good news is good news. Man, it's good news. We don't have to slog with God anymore. We don't have to plod with God anymore. We can walk with him in the cool of the day because of what took place in these two chapters. We're restored to Eden. Man, if you don't take in the loss of Eden, it's not good news. It's just news. But through the cross, we re-enter Eden holding hands with unlikely combinations of people. (laughs) Holding hands with the difficult and formally divided. And together we partake of the righteous tree that is Christ. Ready and cleansed to walk a cool walk with our God. I hope this sort of reality adds new meaning to walking in oneness at three miles an hour. Gardeners don't do anything fast. And gardeners don't work once a month. Gardeners are about this thing daily. And they're slow and they don't expect too much too soon. That ought to minister to you as you look at your own life and you say, man, I'm a wreck. Say, oh, but I'm a gardener. And I'm tending to this stewardship. I have stewardship over this day. I'm tending to this thing called Monday. I'm tending to this thing called March. And I'm just going to walk in it. Because I've been restored to the garden as a gardener. And I'm going to walk with an ordinary people. 
poised to forgive, walking in humility and gentleness with each other. It should add new meaning to walking at three miles an hour, enjoying God and others in the cool of the day. That's what church is. You want to define church? It's a people walking with God and with each other in the cool of the day. Hand in hand, a bunch of unlikelies made one, remembering what restored us there. We're going to take the supper together now. And I'm going to take you to a passage. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. It's in Isaiah. I've been reading through Isaiah on my own just kind of as a uh, spiritual kind of refreshing book for me with no view of teaching, just enjoying the story because it's worth enjoying. Not preparing for a sermon or a lesson or anything like that. But it sort of prepared me for this supper this morning. And it's prepared me in some ways for this message. I just finished chapter 26 in the book of Isaiah. And I've seen this interesting stuff develop in Isaiah. Chapter after chapter that deals with judgment. Here's some of the people that are going to receive judgment according to the book of Isaiah. Judgment for the Babylonians. Judgment for the Assyrians. Judgment for the Philistines. Judgment for the Moabites. Judgment for those in Damascus. Judgment for the Cushites. Judgment for the Egyptians. Judgment for Tyre and Sidon. And even judgment for Jerusalem. And then there's a chapter that's really heartbreaking where the entire earth is judged in chapter 4. And it's summarized like this. It says, The Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's the backdrop of the gospel. That's the heartbreak of Eden, that the world stands in judgment. Every people group Every nation, every age, every tribe stands in judgment because we don't need Adam to be guilty, although we are guilty in Adam. That's the backdrop for this good news in chapter 25. On this mountain, on Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged well wine, well-refined. This table, think of this whenever I read this passage. The supper that we're about to take, a feast. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Dirt daubers carpenter bees. That's why Paul referred to believers who had passed away as asleep in Christ. He wouldn't even call them dead. Because death has no sting. He swallows up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day. And let's let that day be today. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. We experienced the heartbreak of Eden. We waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what I want us to do in these next couple of minutes. For us to be glad as we partake by faith.
of the tree of life that is Christ, a feast. Let's dine together. I'd like for us together to say what was prophesied would be said in this day. To say this, repeat this after I say this, each line. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. He swallowed up death forever. Let's take and eat. The reproach of his people he's taken away from all the earth. That's good news. Let's be glad together and take this. We're going to continue in song and in worship and giving. Share just one last passage with you. This right here in Isaiah, right next to this passage we've engaged. It says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. He will slay the dragon. Man, it's good news. It's good news. Let's continue in worship. I want to encourage you to, uh, to do something. I, I, what I want, what I hope for in a message like this, as you see kind of a macro view, as you see a, a larger chunk of Scripture where you see dots start to connect, is to encourage you to read the Bible with your families. Shepherds, if all you ever do is say, kids, honey, not wife, kids, honey, Let's sit down and read the Bible. Let me read to my family. Read a chapter. If you think, man, I got nothing to give my family. You, if you can read, you can read a chapter and say, God, thank you for your greatness. Say, y'all have a good day. I mean, you don't connect these dots if you don't read sections of Scripture. You just don't. You miss them. You leave them on the ground. And things like this are too rich. Where you see Genesis connect to John, you realize we're part of this big, huge story. Christianity is not God up there waiting to just meet my every need like a heavenly bellboy. We're in the middle of this awesome story where God is redeeming a people for his own glory. Where he's correcting a problem that was indeed ordained. Without authoring the sin of the garden, he ordained it and allowed it so that his son would be famous, so his grace and mercy would be on display in the gospel. If you don't connect these dots, you don't get the gospel, and it's just news. If you connect the dots, then it becomes good news. Then you're like, bro, I'm taking in the problems of Eden, and I'm looking at John chapters 18 and 19, and then that specially vacant tomb, and I'm going, yes, sir, redemption, eternal redemption. That's good news. And I encourage you, shepherds, just read your Bibles. God will do something with that. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us. Tonight at five, members, members, we have a meeting here. And it's important. We, it's, it's our annual meeting that we do once a year. Right? Everybody get that? Everybody got to think about that for a minute. Very funny. That's my joke for the day. So at 5 o'clock, it's going to be cool. Where the people of God gather, we're going to consider what God has done in this last year and anticipate together what's in store for the next one. Let's pray. God, what a great gospel we are part of and embedded within. We marvel at your work.
We look at the cross and we see so much answered. We see all the problems, really the important problems of life reconciled. Lord, I pray that that reality will break into our den, our dinner table, our Tuesday afternoon, our Saturday morning, our conversation where dad drives with his kids in the car. Lord, I pray that these sort of realities will invade just the mundane, ordinary dailiness of life. I pray as a result of that that we will walk like gardeners in the garden, enjoying you, enjoying a finished work, taking together of the righteous fruit that is Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.